And that was when she introduced the device. From a small cardboard box, she produced a combination vaginal plug and cockering attachment. The attachment was made of a sturdy, undurable, transparent plastic. The wires in the attachment, those glorious conductors, were glimmering in the plug and the ring. And then there is this. He was asleep, rolled over, put his hand on my shoulder, and then ran it down my back so slowly that my back came to seem about as long and humped as a sow's. Running in a smooth arc from my rooting, low-slung head to my little stumpy tail, I woke up with a start and remembered the baby pigs. He was very close to me. It was still hot. He was pressing his erection into my leg. I put my hand around it and turned toward it and then took my hand off and pulled the curve of his ass toward me. But for once, I couldn't stand not touching it. Knowing it was there but not holding it in my hand, Ty woke up. I was panting and he was on me in a moment. It was something that was deeply exciting and simultaneously not enough. That part of me that was still a sow longed to wallow, to press my skin against his and be engulfed. So there you have it. A little taste of this episode of Dirty Poetry. Sex inspired by farm animals and electroshock sex. Yes, with the wires and the buzzing box. Don't touch that dial. Stay with me throughout this. We're going to explore the terroir of sex. It's a French word, normally applied to wine, but as usual, we're going to use the word very loosely. Terroir is the effect of soil and sun exposure and how it changes the flavor and the character of wine. Well, in this case, the flavor and character of our sexual expression. We're going to take a listen to two of the possibilities. New York hipsters and Midwestern farmers. Just enough to show us the contrast and the possibilities. And still, underneath it all, is that universal, that universal human desire that reaches across all of time and space, that urge to merge. But the way that it finds expression... Yeah, now that's what shows us the flavor of time and place. Our readings will be from a volume entitled The Good Parts, The Best Erotic Writing in Modern Fiction. It's a compilation edited by J.H. Blair. As you might suspect, the terroir of our erstwhile editor is 
at the Literary Epicenter of the United States, New York City. Our editor begins with On Finding the Good Parts, a reader's preface. Quote, When I was 12, I loved to ride the subways. One day during summer vacation, my friends Danny Franciscini and Mark Feingold and I took the slow, sunny local out to Flushing, and after wandering around Main Street and Northern Boulevard, we found ourselves in Gert's department store, staring at five tables full of pulp paperbacks, all books, three for a dollar. We decided this was too good to pass up. Since we would pass the books back and forth, it would be like reading nine books for a buck. I remember that my three choices were The Black Satin Jungle, Darling, This is Death, and Tropic of Carla. And either Danny or Mark bought one called Kiss, Kiss, Kill, Kill. Later, our parents gave us the usual line that we shouldn't be spending our money on junk, but they weren't really upset. And Mr. Feingold, who read everything from Balzac to Eric Ambler to Alan King's Anyone Who Owns This Home Deserves It, said, Just remember to mark the pages with the good parts. Well, the summer of my sophomore year at Northwestern, I was dating a Sarah Lawrence girl from West 82nd Street named Mindy. Sometimes we would sit on a hillside in Central Park with the smell of suntan butter and the barely audible radio sound of the Mets chasing the Cubs. She was reading Couples, and I was reading Portnoy's Complaint. In between sips of iced tea, Mindy would say, Now this is good, and read aloud. Quote, his blood brooded on Foxy. He dwelled endlessly upon the bits of her revealed to him, her delicate pubic fleece, her high-pitched coital cries, the prolonged and tender and unhoped-for mediations of her mouth upon his phalus, unquote. What Mindy and I didn't know then was that John Updike and Philip Roth were pioneers who were irrevocably changing the rules. Their two books, one quintessentially waspy, the other quintessentially Jewish, both totally modern American in their unrelenting preoccupation with an exploration of sexuality, were pushing erotica to the center stage of serious American fiction. Today, not only have explicit sexual descriptions become an integral part of American literature, but our best authors have elevated erotica to art. Forget pulp fiction. Thanks to the serious dedication of authors like these to their art and to the truth, you don't have to take the train to Flushing to find out about sex. Unquote. This volume, The Good Parts, was published in the year 2000, and there are almost 50 authors represented here. This really is a survey of the very best American writers of the last half of the 20th century.
These are authors not generally known as purveyors of smut, but in an honest portrayal of human existence, their characters do have a sex life. And while these authors are all very much American, they're also very much regional and ethnic. You can clearly see the differences in them. We're going to pick just a couple of examples. This is an amazing volume. It's worth a read. We don't have the time to go through the whole thing, so we're just going to grab a couple off the top. Our first selection is written by Rick Moody. Rick Moody, as of this printing, has written three novels, Garden State, The Ice Storm, and Purple America. His writing is fiercely imaginative, darkly comic, and passionately cerebral. He lives in Brooklyn, New York. Somehow, those previous two sentences are connected in some way. This selection is the title story from his acclaimed short story collection. This is The Ring of Brightest Angels Around Heaven. Quote, They slept together first. They slept together before talking, and it was really, really sexy the way he saw it. It was like the first time. He took off her skirt slowly. He liked to see how slowly it was possible to make love. He kissed her so slowly he didn't even know his lips were moving. How slowly? His movements were in increments smaller than millimeters. The band with no name was playing on the old beat-up tape player, and the video camera was sitting on a tripod pointed out the window. And he was proceeding across her lips as slowly as possible. It could take hours before he would creep down her neck. After pausing to dig an incisor into her earlobe, after pausing to suck on her tongue, hours before he was aimlessly encircling her breast with fingertips. And then further down, he liked every second of it. He even liked unlacing her Doc Martens. Nakedness was never so naked. And then he touched her stomach. Women had gotten pregnant because of his irresponsibility before. Once in boarding school. Once after a weekend by the shore in Mobile. But he had been young then. This was his first time as an adult. The fact of it, the fact of fertility, was enormous and perfect, like the shape of a particularly dangerous storm. Her belly was small and trim. She didn't eat too well, just enough to avoid fainting, she said, nothing more. He traced his finger across her stomach as if he were painting cave paintings there, as if he were trying to render the moment of conception in some pictorial writing, as if trying to capture all the lives bound together in this notion of conception. What was so sexy about all this? What was hot about, become, about coming to the end of the profligate and wandering part of your life? What was sexy about suddenly wanting to accept responsibility? 
Maybe in part, what was sexy was all the bad news, all the risk, all the difficulties. Maybe he wasn't thinking clearly about it at all. But maybe he was. Love was something that had the threat of bad news with it. Love was risk and obligation and caffeine addiction. Love was like watching the Thompson Square riots on television. It was like hearing a guitar amp explode. It was like shooting coke for the first time. It was like watching the demolition of a tenement building. And it was like remembering these pleasures years after they're gone. And that was when she introduced the device. Hey, look, I have this thing to show you. She reached over beside the bed where an ominous-looking electrical kit was waiting. What the fuck is that? The shame of being found out, of being located and then conscripted into the League of Kinks, of being a guy who liked devices and wanted a family. The shame overcame him first. His resistance was first. He knew in some ataviastic part of his unconscious reserved for the pursuit of bodily woes disguised as pleasures, he knew what it was. He didn't know how it was going to work, but he recognized the control knobs on the box. They resembled the knobs that had driven the electric trains of neighbors in his boyhood. One of the dials was marked coarse, and the other adjustment. This is an electrical stimulation box, she said. It's for the film. See, I, I, I'm getting interested in this idea so that I can have like some sex club stuff in it. I could have, you know, couples using these marital aids like this, like this one or Electra or something from Oregon Romance Systems of Las Vegas. These ones here are the instant kill switches, and, and those are the indicator lamps to monitor the control of the voltage. That's, uh-huh, she said, it's for fucking. And from a small cardboard box lying on its side on the faded and dirty Indian rug, she produced a combination vaginal plug and cockering attachment. The attachment was made of a sturdy and durable transparent plastic. And like the finest Steuben sculptures with their hints of silver and gold sunken in the glass renderings, the wires in the attachment, those glorious conductors were glimmering in the plug and the ring. Yvonne had batteries in the device. It was running on battery power, and she juiced it up with the knobs and held the probe by the end. How are you going to use this for the movie, he said. You're going to get friends to use this, and just touch your finger to it quick. It's on the lowest setting. What the fuck? Where did you get this? I borrowed it. I'm thinking we should. Oh, no, Randy said. If you think I'm going to let you electrocute me with that thing so that you can she touched it herself touched an index finger to it there was a velocity to the way that she was avoiding the question in the air he had come over to talk about her pregnancy to talk about the future to raise practical questions but instead they were here with this electro stimulator there was a velocity, a speed, a direction to her avoidance. She was using the device. 
that facsimile of the most potent Latin American political torture machines to stray away from the implications of things. And she wasn't foolish. She knew what she was doing. She touched the plug, and he could hear its faint buzz and its melancholy hum. She held her finger there. He took the thing from her and set it aside. Hey, Yvonne Randy said, I've got a more important question. That's why I came over here. I came over here to ask you something. The plug snapped and fizzled on the edge of Yvonne's comforter. I came over here to ask you to marry me. That's what I came to do, Yvonne. We could get around this problem in a way that you were probably not thinking about. The baby, I mean, we could just get married. And he had the engagement ring in his pocket, an antique silver band that had been in the family for a while. Impulsively, though, before taking the ring out of the tangled khaki trousers on the floor, he took the cock ring from the electrostimulator and set it on her ring finger. She laughed, a nervous high piccolo laughter. He reached for the course knob. No way, she said. I'm too young to get married. I'm not carrying your fucking little junior around for nine months and fucking on my body and my hormones so that you'll have a peg to hang your hat on or somebody to take care of you when you get senile. I don't want to spend my life with anybody. I can't even think about what my life will be like next week. I can't even imagine that I'll have a life next week. Forget it, honey. Forget it. Randy got really angry. He turned the stimulator all the way up. She laughed again. He pressed. He brushed the device off the bed. They started to shout. They actually threw some stuff, some books and lamps. What kind of relationship was this? And what was she going to do? Let this bad luck drive the last bit of fun out of their relationship when it could make them closer? And didn't she want to share anything with them? And didn't she want to know that even on the lowest day that she wasn't alone? Didn't she want to wrinkle with somebody around who loved her? Didn't she want to file a joint tax return but she wouldn't do it wouldn't do it wouldn't do it and he couldn't believe that he had been so stupid that he thought this woman who sold hash and claimed she was some kind of filmmaker that this woman was going to do this marriage and family thing with him how could he be so stupid and then they were fucking again and in the middle of these attentions some key of persuasion was turned in the lock, and she was able to convince Randy that the electric stimulation device was an adventure, a gamble, a temporary shelter. In the penumbra of rejection, he agreed to do it. That was the decision that came first. In that penumbra in the penumbra of late night she had the tape player on and she had the fine adjustment on the stimulator control panel turned down as low as it would go and she had the video camera turned on she had swiveled it around on the tripod to take a close-up on randy's face and she put the cock ring around him now though his cock was only halfway hard and then she turned the knob up slowly it was just like being drilled by the dentist at first. It was that sensation of wrong, of inappropriateness. And then 
There was a white alarm in his head as she turned it up and the sound of the capacitor inside dampening it, and then the device scorched him like there were electromagnetic teeth ripping into his dick, and he tore the thing off with the urgency that one shoes away an ornery wasp that has already deposited its venom, and he collapsed on her bed for a second to catch his breath, to let the shock disperse itself throughout him. It was as though he was joining his friends, the sleepwalkers, as they too were bent upon the rack, the rack of reactivity, desperate simply for sensation in a monochromatic and decontextualized city. Yeah, it was right that he be there in this way, with the ruin only a couple nights behind him and his fascination for the sleepwalkers and the transvestites and the perfect toes of women at the bars. And he waited for the voltage to fade in him until its absence was a sort of pleasure, a sort of relief. And then he noticed her arm around him over his back and her voice in his ear saying, okay, okay. That's right. It seemed she was agreeing suddenly. She was changing her mind. Okay, okay. Yes, she really was. Okay, and so marriage was an interim government between them. And you could say all this lifelong and ever after stuff, but if it didn't work out, they could throw in the towel. She loved him in this vulnerable tableau with the electro-stimulation box beside him. She loved him. They would work it out. The kid would work it out. They would have the kid, and the kid would understand that she had other ambitions. The kid would figure it out. Kids are like super balls or something, like high-concentration rubber objects. Kids could learn to adjust okay. She lit the pipe. She toked on it. She passed it to him. Now it was her turn. She handed him the vaginal plug and lay back against the pillows. Their marriage consisted of a civil ceremony on Staten Island, where the line at the courthouse was shorter. A friend of Yvonne's, Mike, filmed it, though none of the footage worked, really. It was nothing she could use except for a brief shot of the Justice of the Peace straightening his tie. Unquote. And there you have it. From New York hipsters, we're going to Midwestern farmers. Our next selection is written by Jane Smiley. Jane Smiley was born in Los Angeles. She grew up in St. Louis. She studied her undergraduate years at Vassar College, and her graduate years were spent at the University of Iowa, where she received a Ph.D. She lives in Ames, Iowa. She teaches in Ames, Iowa. She writes about Ames, Iowa. She is the author of such acclaimed works of fiction as The Age of Grief, which was nominated for the National Book Critics Circle Award, Ordinary Love, and A Thousand Acres, for which she was awarded the Pulitzer Prize. This is a brilliant retelling of the King Lear story from the eldest daughter's point of view in the context of 
a Midwestern farm life. Our reading today is an excerpt from that novel, A Thousand Acres. Quote, I lay awake in the hot darkness, naked and covered by the sheet. Every so often, I lifted the sheet and looked under it, at my blue-white skin, my breasts with their dark nipples, the foreshortened rounded triangles of my legs, my jutting feet. I looked at myself while I thought about having sex with Jess Clark, and I could feel my flesh turn electric at these thoughts. Could feel sensation gather at my nipples, could feel my vagina relax and open, could feel my lips and my fingertips grow sensitive enough to know their own shapes. When I turned on my side and my breasts swam together and I flicked the sheet for a bit of air, I saw only myself turning, my same old shape moving in the same old way. I turned onto my stomach so that I wouldn't be able to look so that I could bury my face in that black pillow. It wasn't like me to think such thoughts, and though they drew me, they repelled me. I began to drift off, maybe to escape what I couldn't stop thinking about. Ty, who was asleep next to me, rolled over and put his hand on my shoulder and then ran it down my back so slowly that my back came to seem about as long and humped as a sow's, running in a smooth arc from my rooting, low-slung head to my little stumpy tail. I woke up with a start and remembered the baby pigs. Ty was very close to me. It was still hot, and he was pressing his erection into my leg. Normally, I hated waking in the night with him so close to me, but my earlier fantasies must have primed me, because the very sense of it there, a combination of feeling its insistent pressure and imagining its smooth, heavy shape, it doused me like a hot wave. Instantly, I was breathless. I put my hand around it and turned toward him. Then I took my hand off it, and I pulled the curve of his ass toward me. But for once, I couldn't stand not touching it, knowing it was there but not holding it in my hand. Ty woke up. I was panting. He was on me in a moment. It was something. It was deeply exciting and simultaneously not enough. The part of me that was still a sow longed to wallow, to press my skin against his and be engulfed. I whispered, don't open your eyes, and I did not. Normally, nothing would wake me from this unaccustomed dream of my body faster than opening my eyes. Afterward, when we did open our eyes and we were ourselves again, I saw that it was only 10.15. I moved away to the cooler edge of the bed. Ty said, I liked that. That was nice. And he put his hand affectionately on my hip without actually looking at me. His voice carried just a single quiver of embarrassment. That was pretty good for us. Then I heard the breeze start up, rustling the curtains. And then I heard the rattle of the hog feeders and the sound of a car accelerating in the distance. The moon was full. 
and the shadows of bats fluttering in the moonlight. The sawing of cicadas distinguished itself in the barking of a dog. I fell asleep. With Jess Clark in that old pickup bed in the dump the next afternoon, it was much more awkward. My arms and legs, stiff and stock-like, thumped against the wheel well. The truck bed poked Jess in the ribs, the back. My skin looked glaringly white, white like some underground sightless creature. When he leaned forward to untie his sneakers, I felt my cheeks as clammy as clay. Jess eased me backwards. I didn't watch while he unbuttoned my shirt. He said, all right. I nodded. Really? I'm not very used to this. He pulled back away from me, the look on his face unsmiling, suddenly cautious. Yes, I said, please. It was humiliating to ask, but that was okay, too. Reassuring in a way. He smiled. That was the reward. Then afterward, I began all at once to shiver. He pulled away, and I buttoned three buttons on my shirt. He said, are you cold? It's only 94 degrees out here. Maybe terrified, but I wasn't anymore. Now the shaking was pure desire. As I realized what we had done, my body responded as it hadn't while we were doing it. Had never done, I thought. I felt blasted with desire, irradiated, rendered transparent. Jess said, are you okay? I said, hold me for a while and keep talking. He laughed a warm, pleasant, very intimate laugh and said something about, let's see, well, um, the Sears man would be out tomorrow at last, and, and I came in a drumming rush from toes to head. I buried some moans in his neck and shoulder, and he hugged me tightly enough to crack my ribs, which was just tightly enough to contain me, I thought. He kept talking. Harold was feeling a little sheepish and making Lauren tuna and mushroom soup with noodles casserole for dinner. Jess had promised to put it in the oven at 4.30. What time was it now? The farmer near Sac City had called him back. 470 acres in corn and beans. Only green manure and animal manures for fertilizer. The guy's name was Morgan Boone, which sounded familiar. Did it sound familiar to me? He said that Jess could come over any time. Jess held me away from him again and gazed for a long minute or two. I looked at the caresses under his eyes, his beaky nose, his serious expression. His face was deeply familiar to me, as if I'd been staring at it my whole life. I took some deep breaths and lay back on his shoulder. The sky was steel blue. The sun was caught in the lacy leaves of the locust tree above us. I wanted to say, what now? But that was a dangerous temptation for sure. So I didn't. Unquote. So there you have it. Two very short stories that illustrate the fact that any Every warm-bodied human can find their way to the glories of sex. It's happening. 
It's happening in every city, town, and village on the planet. There are humans passionately pressing themselves together to try to make sex. Men and women feverishly rubbing themselves together to try to make sparks. Deep in the night, under the cover of darkness, in the broad daylight, backed up deep into a shady turn-off out along some old country road. As long as women know what they want, as long as men know where to go, we will stoke the fires of human sex in our multitude of ways, in every time and space. Every warm-blooded human will find their own particular way to the glories of sex. There it is. It is said. I bid you happy trails until we meet again over the next session of Dirty Poetry. Using the word poetry very loosely, of course. <laughs>